Amen. I like that. It's a good thing about our Lord is I can't promise you that uh, I won't do something stupid tomorrow, but I can promise you He'll still love me through it. He loved me through what I did yesterday, and He can see me what I'll do tomorrow, and He still loves me regardless and in spite of all of it. Man, we have a good Lord. It's good to be in the Lord's house today, and I just want to talk to you a few moments on what moves the Master. We'll be in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. I absolutely love the Gospels. I'm talking about I love them. They are, it's such good reading. I'm, uh, you could not pick up a better secular book and read it than the Gospels, man. I tell you, there's just so much. Uh, it's just better than any nonfiction fiction book you can find. And it's all true. It's just great. I love it. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 9. We'll start reading in verse 18. And I do love reading quite a bit of scripture when I preach. So we'll start in verse 18. And we'll read on down through verse 38. Pray for my dad today. As he is uh, at Brother Larry Chapel's church, uh, this church actually started, uh, helped start that church. Uh, Brother Larry Chapel is a great preacher, a great man of God, and uh, he is in La Quinta, California. And my dad is speaking for him th- today, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mom, it's the first anniversary of the church. And uh, I know that Brother Chapel was praying, I think, for four families to be saved. And, and uh, I just know they were having a big Sunday, so pray for, pray for my dad as a man, the affectionate, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Amen? All right. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 18, the Bible starts out and says, And while he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler, and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place. For the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. Boy, that's never a good idea to laugh at the Lord. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all the land. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. When he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But but when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. As he went out, Behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb man, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. And really, here begins our scripture. This is where we find our passage that we will focus on most of today. In verse 35, And Jesus went out, about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. It's pretty good news, isn't it? Everything's going great. Everything's fine. I mean, Jesus is going throughout the land. He's he's healing every sickness He finds. We don't even know how many. I know that there's at least five in this chapter. And He goes through and He goes on and it says every disease and sickness is being healed. But then you find here in verse 36 a word that is very unlikely to follow. And great things are happening. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous. But the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that He will send forth laborers into His harvest. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I pray that you would please be with me in these next few moments. Lord, I pray more than that, though. I pray that you'd be in the listeners in this room. I pray that you would open their hearts so that they might receive something from you today. Your word has been read, and I believe that we could dismiss service right now and go home. But Father, I do believe you've given me a message. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give me liberty to preach it. It's in your son's precious and holy name I do pray. Amen. Now, my wife and I have been married just over a year now. January 21st was our one-year anniversary. And you learn a lot of things your first year of marriage. But I can promise you this. If there's one thing that my wife and I will ever spend any time in any type of marriage counseling session over, it will be the TV remote. (laughs) We don't fight about anything. I mean, we don't get mad at each other about anything. But boy... What program is on TV determines how good or not is going to be. If it were up to me, now you think I'm kidding. I love sports. I use a lot of sports stories when I get up here. And I tell you, if it were up to me, it would either be on MLB TV, just because I'm a huge Rangers fan. It would either be on ESPN, Channel 206. I would watch SportsCenter. I'm the dork that watches SportsCenter over and over and over again the same morning. It's the same show. They show up from like 6 o'clock to noon, and I watch every one of them. It's the same program. Uh, And then if it wasn't on that, it would be on maybe Fox Southwest, where my Mavericks are playing, right? Uh, That's just who I am. I love watching sports. Hey, it's a lot better alternative than some of the junk that's on TV, amen? So I love watching sports, and if it were up to me, it would either be on one of those channels. And the occasional hunting show, okay? Depending on the season. Now, if it were up to my wife, MLB TV would not be very high on that list. Shocking, I know. She said, and I quote, I hate baseball, I can't wait for it to be over with. (laughs) It's funny because she said the exact same thing in the playoffs last year when the Mavericks were in it. And I don't get too much into the Cowboys because I get angry at them, so... So all that, you know, those are my shows, those are my television programs, and my wives, however, are very different. If I come in, it's usually the cooking channel or Food Network. She's all about that. I can put up with the occasional one, the Chopped show, I can watch that. There's a little competition, it's very close to sports with food. So uh, I'll watch that one, that one's good. Uh, Rachel Ray, even though it, it's hard to understand what she's saying because it sounds like she's always hoarse, I'll watch her just because she's kind of playful with it, whatever. But after that, it gets very few and far between as far as what cooking shows I'll watch. And if it's not on that, most generally, my wife is a huge NCIS fan, so she'll watch some NCIS. Can I get an amen on that? That's a great show, amen. So I'll watch that. But beyond that, She watches some shows that I'm not a fan of. We walk in and a Hallmark show's on and she's just bawling. She's crying. This is such a good movie. Really? I could not tell by your face. The other day, my wife and Jamie went and watched this movie. And I remember watching the previews for this movie. And when the preview showed, I said... There is no way in this lifetime or in any lifetime to come that I will ever watch that movie. It's one of those, I call it glutton for punishment movies. You know the whole time nothing happy is going to happen. And you're just going to cry the entire movie. You know, you can do a lot with a funny plot, but when it's a sad plot, there's nowhere up from there. And I believe the movie was about a, a, a dad that died in the World Trade Centers and, and uh, the daughter or the wife and the son had to go on living without him. Yeah. No thanks. I'm not going to watch that one. Well, last night we had this debate and my wife turns on a movie that I had seen and I remembered saying as I walked out of the movie theater, I will never watch that again. The movie is called Marley and Me. And that movie was on television last night, and I'm trying to prepare spiritually for a message. And my wife is watching this movie. And what's sad to me is that the whole movie 
is based upon getting you to fall in love with this dog. From the first part, you hate the dog, and then it, you kind of get really attached to it. And I believe that there were probably like six brilliant movie producers sitting around a table saying, what can we make this dog do that will make everybody just absolutely love him? And then we'll kill him off. And it's basically a modern day old yeller. It's the worst thing ever. I will never watch movies like that. And so I asked her last night, I was like, can you please change this? Because, you know, once you've seen the movie, you know what happens. So now at the happy parts where you're supposed to be smiling, you're crying. It's like, that was so sweet, but he's going to die at the end. He's such a good dog, but he's going to die. And it's terrible. But one of the things that I've learned about my wife is that over this year, I, I've noticed the things that like just pull her string. You know, she's a crier. She'll cry at anything on TV. A good Hallmark commercial comes on, like the Hallmark card commercial. She's like, you know, he's in the army and they sent him a postcard. And that is just so sweet. And she, she's a crier, so she'll cry about anything. But I have noticed that there are certain things that, that, that really pull her strings and, and really move her at, at, at that thing. And one of those things is when she thinks about like her grandparents and, and one of her, her papa passed on and, and, and she loves thinking about him and she just misses him so much. And, and that will get her to cry and it, it moves her when she thinks about him because she just loved him so much. And and in this passage, I believe that today we see something that moves our Lord like nothing else while He was on this earth. It literally moved Him, the Bible says, with compassion. So I, I want to take a few moments. And I believe that me knowing what moves my wife has made me closer to my wife. So that if we can find what moves our Lord, maybe we can move a step closer in our relationship with Him. First of all, I believe that we'd be remiss in looking at this chapter in Matthew if we did not, first of all, look at the miracles of correction that happened. First of all, there's miracles of correction all throughout this. If you read all the way in verse 6, the first one happens, and there's a man sick of the palsy, and then Jesus saith, uh, He to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. Jesus heals a crippled man in verse 6. In verse 18, there's a woman who uh, has an issue of blood and she touches the hem of Christ's garment and she is healed. In verse 25, I see that Jesus goes to this man's daughter uh, and the maid, Jesus says, oh, she's just asleep. And, And he raises her from the dead, man. Our Lord has power over everything, over the death, over sickness. I see, first of all, that He has that power over sickness. You look in this passage and, and every other story in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, you see Christ's healing power all throughout it. That's one of the most phenomenal things to me about the Gospels is that you can look at the power of our God and, and something that is so out of man's realm and so out of our spectrum, God just takes care of it like that. I absolutely love reading the Gospels because Jesus, what people are, you know, when, when, when they're crying over Lazarus and he's been dead four days and there's no hope, Jesus just walks in and says, Lazarus, come forth. It's not a big deal to God. I love reading the Gospels. In verse 30, you see here in this chapter, the, the two men approach Jesus with blinded eyes and Jesus just says, your faith has done this. You're fixed, man. It's over with. You're not blind anymore. I love that. Also in verse 35, I just see how the Bible gets tired of writing all the miracles out. And it just says, he went through healing every sickness that they had. He just went through everywhere, healing every sickness that they had. Boy, what a great thing to know. That when I go and I see people in the hospital that have no answer, that I can turn to someone who has an answer. It's so comforting to know that when I approach them and I can just say, you know what, is there anything that we can do for you as a church? Can I go get you lunch? Can I go get you food? That only fixes a temporary need, but the need, the more imminent need is what's laying on the hospital bed. And, and I cannot have an answer for that. 
You know what? My dad has taught me that when we go make those visits, you know what you always do? You always pray with them. Because you take that need to somebody who can fix it like that. It's not a big deal to our God. He has power over sickness. But is that what moves him? No, it's not. Not only does he have power over sickness, he has power over sin. And I absolutely love this in verse 2 of chapter 9. Behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Only God can forgive sins. That's a proof of Christ's deity right there. He forgives the man his sins. And then, obviously, these people go on to reason within themselves. So Only God can forgive sins. Who is this man? And then in verse 6, you see, uh, Jesus in verse 5 says, For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. I'll tell you what, I'll do both of them. And so in verse 6, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine own house. Boy, isn't that good. The man has a very imminent need. He's he's paralyzed. There's no answer. There's no cure for paralysis. And so, you know what Jesus says? Your sins are forgiven. These people say, Who are you to, to say something like that? Jesus obviously goes on to say, you can walk now, rise up and walk. And he goes on and starts walking. But what kind of great physician would Jesus be if the man came in with a terminal illness and left with a band-aid? You see, if, if you were to hear the news tomorrow that you had cancer, and it was the most aggressive type of cancer that you could ever have, and you probably had another week on this earth, Now, obviously, you would go to your doctor and you would find out who the best cancer specialist was. And you would fly to Jamaica if it took that. And you would go and and you would go to this doctor and he would say, "Okay, they're right. You have this terminal illness. It's, It's looking really bad. I'll tell you what, I can heal you, though. I'll tell you what I'll do. I will heal you. And all I'll have to do is take this little Hello Kitty bandage and put on your leg And you'll be fine. Now a week later when you die, guess what? That band-aid did nothing. You had a terminal illness and any outside cure was not going to do anything. You were going to die. And so what I love about this is not only does Christ have power over sickness, but Christ looks at this man and his most pressing and imminent need was not his need to walk. It was his need to be saved. It was his need for forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus says... First of all, what I'm going to fix in you is not your paralysis. I'm going to heal your sin problem. And I'm so grateful that uh, when I was a young man at 12 years old, Christ healed my sin problem. You see, I had a lot of problems in my life at that time, but the most pressing and the most imminent one was absolutely my sin problem. But as I look at this, that's still not what moves Christ. It wasn't the sin or even the, the sicknesses that he was healing. So not only do I see in this passage that there are several miracles of correction, but this is what I see was the movement of compassion. In verse 36, it's very evident. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. First of all, I see that he had compassion on the lost lambs. You see, when I look at this, I can picture in my mind Christ standing and and gazing out over a multitude of people that are following him. Thousands upon thousands of people. And Christ looks at them and each one of them wanting to heal somebody. and, And Christ looked at them and he saw something that he didn't ever want to see. And Isaiah 43 tells us, That at this time, it tells us in verse 6 that, uh, uh, let me see here, In, in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, and this is a prophecy of this time. It says we have turned everyone to his own way. That's a prophecy of what this time would be like. Every man was wicked. Every man had no shepherd. They were all doing their own thing. So Christ looks out among the multitudes and he sees not only that they had sin problems and they had sickness problems, But they were not being led by the one true shepherd. 
It moved God that they were not following His leadership. I believe it also moves God when we don't follow His leadership today. You see, God looks at them and He says, these are sheep and they're just wandering aimlessly. They, they don't know what they're doing. They're just doing their own thing. And that's not what sheep do. They, they follow the shepherd. And it upset Him that they were not following the one true shepherd. Christ looked at the lambs and, and He understood that when sheep lead themselves, it never ends well. The Bible says in Proverbs, There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of destruction. And Christ understood that, and so He looks at them and He says, This is not what you're supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to be leading yourself. You're supposed to be following Me. But that was not what was happening. You know, America is in extremely bad shape. I watched TV last night. In just a few moments of the television show, they made fun of Jesus Christ. Christ is the butt of every joke now. Men that claim Christ make sports center because people are telling him he can never be anything. America hates God. The show that I saw last night was promoting how that gay rights marriage is so close to happening and they were saying, what a victory. No, not a victory. That's against the Bible. That's against God. And I watch television and everything I see, everything is promiscuous. Everything is sinful. Everything is promoting this wicked lifestyle. America's farther from God now than it has ever been. Sounds awful similar to sheep having no shepherd. They don't have an answer. They just, they just lead themselves. You know what we're doing, America? We're leading ourselves into destruction. Not only do I see that in America, but I see that a lot in the church. You know what's sad is that the divorce rate matches outside of the church as inside of the church. That ought not be, church. I think if, if we had couples that followed the Lord and turned to Him for leadership, that would not happen. Amen. We would not be matching the world, but we would rather be able to stand up and say, no, I have a perfect picture of marriage and it's found in the Word of God. We'd be able to stand up to the gay rights and say, no, we have what works, but we can't. Because we're just like the world. Marriages are falling each and every day. Teenagers are rebelling every single day. Mom and dad don't love their kids. America's in a bad way, folks. And it scares me that the church is right behind it. The church is supposed to be a foundation marker, a stationary place that never moves. And yet what I see is the world moving and the church right behind it. Why is our music changing if it's not? Why is our Bible changing if it's not? Why is there a Bible written in Ebonics? The world's moving and we're right behind it, church. We're lost lambs. And what I see is that breaks God's heart. That His people... Specifically in this passage, passage, the nation of Israel. But His people would not follow Him as the shepherd. Not only are there the lost lambs, but look, this is what moves God as well. That there would ever be a lack of laborers. In verse 37, this is what the Bible says. He sees this multitude. He sees the people out. He sees them following their own way. And He says, boy, the need is so great. In verse 37, He says, Then saith He unto the disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, But the laborers are few. You know, there's only two reasons that I ever find in the Bible why somebody would ever not want to be a laborer for the Lord. First of all, I find my first one in Ezekiel. It's the reason of unavailability. Ezekiel, when God, the omniscient God of this universe, knows everything, is everywhere. The Bible says that if we find ourselves in the depths of hell... His Spirit will be there with us. He knows everything. He is everywhere. And know what He says in Ezekiel? 
And I sought for a man among them to stand in the gap that should make up the hedge. But I found none. The God who knows everybody by name, that knows the very hairs on your head, could not find a man. He had nowhere to turn. The excuse of unavailability. You know what this is? Oh, my job's keeping me from church. Unavailability. You know, I, I can't really go soul winning because that's our family day. Unavailability. See, God's seeking for men in this world of lost lambs to stand in the gap. He's seeking for men that will lead their families after what He would have us to do. And He's seeking for them and He's looking for them, but He says the laborers are just too few. I came to soul winning yesterday. Well, I have to say the laborers were awful few yesterday, wouldn't you, Brother Jim? Church, we stand up and we praise the Lord when we come to church, but the laborers are just too few. God did not call us to sit soaking sour. He did not call us to come and enjoy church and then leave and enjoy the world. He called us to be workmen in the vineyard, to plow the field, to harvest. He says, the harvest is great. Man, everybody needs answers. Everybody has questions and there's just nobody to get the word out. Secondly, there's the excuse of preoccupation. And I see that in Matthew chapter 8. The Bible says, And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me to first go and bury my father. Preoccupation. The man says, Lord, I'll follow you. You know I'll follow you. You know I love you. But I have this thing to do first. How much money do you need stashed away in your 401k before you'll start serving the Lord? How many Sundays and Saturdays and Wednesdays are you going to miss before you understand that there is nothing more important than serving God? Preoccupation. When I was in high school, I don't know if you know this, but kind of when you're a freshman and a a sophomore and a junior, you're pretty much playing for your seniors is the way I always felt. In your underclassmen years, you play knowing that those guys will never have the chance to play in high school again. And so you play your hardest every single game for those guys. Well, when I was a senior, I obviously felt my due respect that, hey, I've been here, this will be my last season to ever play. So I think people ought to work hard for me. I did it for everybody else. And Brother Jim Jim taught me that philosophy, and I think it's a good one. These men will never have the chance to play in this game again, especially like a last game. So you give everything you got to make sure they have a good one. Well, my senior year, we were pretty low on numbers on our team. That's one of the disadvantages of a Christian school. We had enough to make a team, but there was this one specific kid in our school that just decided not to play basketball this year. And he would have really helped our team. He wouldn't have been necessarily a star, but he would have brought depth to our team. He would have worked hard and he probably would have started for us and it would have just helped our team. And so I went up to him, me and another senior did, and we asked him personally a favor. And we said, man, this is our last year. We want to be as good of a team as we can this last year. And so would you please play with us? Ended up the kid did not play. We went on to have a season, a decent season. I'm not sure if we made playoffs or not. I know we didn't advance out of the first round. Because of that guy, had no real preoccupation. He just said, no, nah, I'm really unavailable. I, I don't really want to do that. Because of that, I can't promise you we'd have gone on to win state with him. But I know we would have been stronger with him. I know he would have had strength in numbers, and I know he would have made us a better team if he would have just played for me. I asked him a favor. I just asked him, would you play? And he said no. You see, you may not be the most talented person. You may not have the greatest ability, speaking ability, teaching ability. You may not even be able to sing quite well. 
But when you serve for the kingdom of the Lord, when you serve Christ, you're just making the kingdom stronger. It doesn't matter if you're the most talented. Nobody is. And the one thing I learned when I went out to college, there's always somebody better than you. There's always a better singer. There's always a better preacher. There's always a better basketball player. There's always going to be that excuse if you want to cop out like that. But as we serve for the Lord, we cannot look at everybody else around us and say, oh, they already have somebody. Because it is the Lord's heart. It is what moves him with compassion when he sees multitudes and multitudes of people needing the gospel. And yet we don't have anybody here to tell them. The laborers are too few, friend. The laborers are too few, Joshua Baptist. We need some people that will put their hand to the plow and just look in God and say, Lord, if this is what's important to you, that I would come on Saturday and spread your message, that I would live a Christian life. If that's what is important to you, that is what I will do. Because that is what moves the Lord with compassion. So not only do I see that there are miracles of correction, and then I see that God was moved with compassion. But uh, finally, look with me, if you will, that the very mission of Christ is exactly what moves him with compassion. First of all, I see that Christ's mission was to harvest. In Matthew chapter 1, when they're being foretold of Christ's coming, it said, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save the people from their sins. That is exactly what Christ's purpose was to do, is come to this earth and save the people from their sins. And I'm so glad he did. Amen. Amen. Jesus put it this way in Luke 19, and many Bibles take this verse out. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That is what Christ came to do. He gave His mission statement right there. This is the reason I came, to save that which was lost. Matthew chapter 9, in this exact passage, I see how the Pharisees start questioning Him. And Jesus saying, uh, said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am come to call to righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, I'm not called to save the righteous. I'm called to save the sinner. And I'm so glad he did. Amen. But Christ's whole mission on this earth was to come to save that which was lost. You and me, we were lost. Christ came to save us. And that's what I love about this is, Christ, if you could imagine what Christ was seeing, multitudes and multitudes of people needing to be healed and coming to Him. And He just looks out and He says, I came to harvest, man. I didn't come to heal. In another gospel, He says, a wicked and perverse generation seeketh after a sign. He says, I don't need to heal you. I came to harvest. I, I came so that souls could be saved. And that was Christ's whole goal. That was the mission of Christ. You know what I think sad? Is when the church's mission statement does not exactly match Christ's mission statement. Christ's mission statement was to seek and to save that which was lost. And by actions, I would say very few churches prove that. I would say that by the absentees at soul winning and by the few people that we are hearing of being saved from this church's gospel presentations, I would have to look and I'd say, our mission statement is not matching Christ's. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Not so that we could sit in the back and play dominoes. Not so that we could have good ice cream fellowships. Not so that we could eat watermelon together. Not so that we could have good chicken fried Sundays. No! So that Christ could come to seek and to save that which was lost. I think that maybe we have misplaced our priorities on what's important. I think that maybe we have, we have started, and I'm guilty of this, we focus more on the beauty of a banner, the design, the presentation of software, the cameras, the lights, the live stream. We, we focus a little bit more on that. We've taken our eyes off of what's truly important to our Savior. Seeing people saved. Harvesting souls. That's the most important thing. That's what moves the Savior, is it not? 
he looks out and he says, the harvest is truly plenteous, but the laborers are so few. Let me ask you, friend, what is it that you're going to do about that? How can you fix that? If it's important to God, are you going to change your lifestyle so that it can be important to you? See, I'm putting you on the spot today. We don't need to leave exactly like we came because what we're doing isn't working. We need to change today. And I'm asking each and every one of you individually and and purposely, what are you going to do to change it? Are you going to continue missing evangelistic outreaches? Are we going to share the gospel at our work? What, What are you going to do to change it? You see, because if it's important to Christ, it must be important to me. It has to be important to me. How could I ever walk with my Lord? How could I ever maintain a relationship, a fellowship with Him? If, if my heartbeat was not His heartbeat, the very heartbeat of Christ is seeing people come to Him. Because after all, He did not come to suffer so that people could die and go to hell. But look, this is where it really gets good, folks. Not only did He come to harvest, but He came to herd. Look with me, if you will, in verse 37. In verse 36, he saw the multitudes, and and this is what he says. He was moved with compassion because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Now take your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, wonderful passage of Scripture. Christ looks out on the multitudes, he says, they have no direction, they have no shepherd. You know what, I see a passage right here that Christ is telling us three things he'll do for us. First of all, in verse 11, the Bible says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hiring and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep or not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. And am known of mine, as the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. First of all, let me, let, this is where it gets good. If you haven't paid attention the whole time, pay attention to this. If you're a saved person in this church today, this is where it's good. First of all, our shepherd distinguishes us. In verse 14 of this passage, the Bible says, I know my sheep. Aren't you glad we have a personal God? See, God didn't have to care about me. I'm a very small person. I'm very minuscule, what I could do, my influence in this world. But He loves me and He cared about me. Now, earlier, if you know anything about sports, you maybe heard me reference Tim Tebow. I didn't say his name, but people make fun of this guy because he has a walk with the Lord. He's trying to live a good life and giving all the glory to the Lord, and they are roasting him because of it. And I, you know, I like Tim Tebow. My mom and I saw a documentary on Tim Tebow way before he ever went to Florida. And we, we became fans then it, just because he's a, he was a homeschooled kid. He moved into the district to play football because in Florida, you, if you're in the district, you can play for that school and you don't actually have to attend the school. And so he would move like 30 miles to an apartment for, so his mother could tutor him to do the homeschooling and, and he would work at this school and he would do his work at home and then he would play football for the school and that's how he got recognized. Tim Tebow dominated in high school. He went on to Florida as a freshman. He played under, a, a, I think his name was Chris Leak, if I'm not mistaken. And he played under the guy, but he played quite a bit for a freshman and the guy was a senior, Chris Leak was. And so he played as a freshman in a college that had a senior already. And so what he's done has been pretty impressive. If you know anything about him, he went on, he graduated, he won one Heisman, I believe. He won the national championship once, played in the national championship twice. And he went on to the NFL, and you know right now we find him on the Denver Broncos. Made a miracle run to get into the playoffs. The team had no business being there. They started him out losing. I mean, this other quarterback was playing, and they lost four straight games, I think. They changed quarterbacks, and Tim Tebow started winning. That's why, you know, you see all this about Tim Tebow. Well, I watched a deal the other day, and you've seen on TV where they'll mic up players. You know, they'll put a mic on them, and you can tell what they're saying. 
And Brother Jim, I believe, watched it with me. And, and basically, they put this mic on Tim Tebow. It was great because, I mean, this kid's real. He's standing in warm-ups, throwing the football, and he's saying, Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. He's singing a Christian song around all these dudes with Beats headphones on. Boom! Boom! And Tim Tebow's a dork over there. Our God. It's awesome. I love it. But the most special thing to me in that video is, I don't know if you know this, but Tim Tebow, on his own money, pays for somebody who is, uh, you know, kind of at a disadvantage in life. I think this kid had some type of illness. And he paid and he flew his family and this kid in. He spends an hour with them after every single game, win or loss, which is huge for a starting quarterback right after a game. And on his own personal finances, he flies these people in. He treats them nice. He puts them up in a hotel on his own money. And he just spends time with them. And I have heard this not only that time, but he does it every single game. He does somebody different every game. This is what he says. He says, it just helps me realize that there are more important things than football. I love that. That's great. But the most special part of it is when he walks up to this little kid. And he says... Hey, do you remember when we were down in Disney? And he starts talking to him about something they had done months ago. And the kid goes, you remember that? And Tim Tebow goes, of course I remember that. You just made that little kid's life. Tim Tebow doesn't have to do that. That was awesome. I love it. But the special thing about it is that Tim Tebow knew him. It wasn't just a face. It wasn't just so that he could get publicity on it. He knew the kid. And it meant the world to that kid that he knew him. Friend, my God, the other day, bent down and he said, Andrew, you remember when I saved you? You remember that I've always been faithful to keep every single promise that I've ever gave you? Remember that I gave you a wife and a family that loves you? In a church that you're able to go to and be so happy in. God cares about me. He cares about you too. Don't overlook how great it is that our God is a personal and caring God for each and every one of us. If you want, you can have the closest walk to God in this church. And it all depends on you because God's willing to go the whole way. Just draw nigh unto me and I will draw nigh unto you. Boy, it's so nice to know that my God distinguishes me. I'm not just a number to God. I am a personable sheep in His fold. I love it. Not only does He distinguish us, but this is where it gets real good. He defends us. He goes on to tell the story about a hireling. He says, you know what? You hire a guy to come in there and watch your sheep, and he won't take care of the sheep. A wolf comes and he'll just run off because he doesn't own the sheep. He doesn't care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I will take care of you when that wolf comes. Aren't you glad of that? Sometimes when people come to me with problems and when I have problems in my own life, you know all I can say? I'll pray for you, man. Because I'm not very good at fighting off wolves. But the good shepherd is. He is great at it. In fact, the Bible says in James, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You submit to God, you you purpose your life to God, God will take care of the devil. He'll take care of that Roman lion, man. One thing we do on the basketball team is we uh, have taught the guys. There's this thing that people do when they get beat on defense. They stand around a little bit and then they realize, well, that guy's running up the court with the ball. So I'll sneak up behind him and steal the ball. I think it's super lame because you're not a very good defender if you couldn't stay in between that guy and the basket. Just saying. But what they'll do is they'll, they'll wait around and JT Zorns is the king of this. He'll go like picnic on the side of the court so that you get the rebound and start walking up the floor. And he comes from behind you and steals it from you. It's so annoying. He's like standing off talking to some person. You don't even think he's in the game. And then five seconds later, he's stealing the ball from you. But one thing that we've taught our guys to do is, usually one of the only people that don't know what's about to happen is the guy dribbling the ball. For the most part, every teammate sees what's happening. And so what do we yell, Brother Jim? We say, 
Wolf! We would say lion, but that's a two-syllable word. And so, wolf is a lot easier. And what it means is, for that player dribbling the ball up the floor, when they hear wolf, they're to turn around and watch their back. That's what it means, and we do that every time. Dribbling up the floor, a guy comes from behind, our whole team says, wolf! And it means, turn around, dude, somebody set your back. You know what's great about our God is he yells wolf. When we're in trouble, when we have problems, he yells wolf for us. He knows who's going to be at our tail. He knows the devil's going to be on us. But guess what? God is the best at fighting off the devil. And that's why we submit to him. God will take care of you. God will defend you in any problem you have. But not only does he distinguish us and he defends us, but look, the good shepherd died for us. In verse 15, boy, this is so good. Christ says, as the Father knoweth me, even so do I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He doesn't say I would lay down my life for the sheep. Christ knows that in just a matter of months, actually, I don't even think it's that long. He knows in just a few weeks, he will be laying down his life for the fold. He says, The Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. That's why we're all here today. That's the only reason that we have anything in common. Me and Brother Jay aren't much alike. Brother Jay's a big dude, could kill me with the flick of his finger. He's in construction. I was telling Brother Terry Sears this morning... I wouldn't know what to do if I were out there trying to do a construction job. Brother Jay and me don't have much in common. But we do have one thing in common. Ain't that right, Brother Jay? We're just sinners saved by grace. Our God loved me. Our God loved Him. And He died for both of us. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. And I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know your spiritual condition. I don't know what you did last night that may have offended the Lord. I don't know, but guess what? God loves you. And the good shepherd laid down his life for you. More importantly, understand this. If you've never been saved in this room today, and I believe without a shadow of a doubt, many people might disagree. I I believe there are people in this room that are not saved. And you may not even know what the term saved means. But as I look at the shepherd... And I look at the intensity and and, uh, the emotion in his voice. He says, I will lay down my life for my sheep. You're a sheep in this room today. And what Christ is saying is, I gave my life so that you would never have to face anything bad. I love Isaiah 53. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, spitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. You see, the good shepherd laid down his life for you over 2,000 years ago. And he came to this earth in a a manger, so humble. And he came and he let the creation kill the creator. And he put his hand, he says, the Bible says that he... Lifted not, he opened not his mouth, and as a sheep before his shearer was dumb, he died on the cross for you. And if you're not saved and you don't know what saved means, he loves you. Loved you so much that he laid down his life for you. And all you have to do is trust in that payment. All you have to do is by faith accept his gift. When I was in college, I worked a job. Uh, and I was at a golf store. Now, th- it kind of was a miracle because I wasn't looking for a job. I didn't need a job. I had just met Jamie's brother, Bud, and we were going down to uh, La Quinta, where my dad is, to play golf. It, in case you don't know, La Quinta and Palm Desert has like 200 and something golf courses within the city limits. It is the Myrtle Beach of the West Coast. There are so many golf courses. You, everywhere you go, you see a brick wall. And you see golf, the, every time there's a golf course inside. It's, it's phenomenal. Some of the best golf courses in the world are there. And so we were going down to play at this place. And, and I went into this golf store up closer to our college. And they saw me swing the golf club. They got to talking to me. And they pretty much hired me on the spot. 
I said, but hold on, I got a friend that needs a job a lot worse than I do. I'll get him, and he hated this blind selling job he had. So I went and got him, and he was like, yeah, I'll work at a golf store. So basically what happened is they hired us both. Me and Bud were starting work at this golf store, and it was really a pretty cool job because anytime you get to mess with golf things all day and you get paid for it, it's a good day. <laughs> so me and Bud were like kids in a candy shop, hitting clubs all day. We know everything about every golf club known to man. And we're finding out new cool things, and we're selling, Bud's selling like you would not believe. And I don't lie, so I don't sell that much, you know. <laughs> I love it. Bud would say, you know, this is the greatest golf club in this store. You're not a fan of it? Well, that one right there would probably be a little bit better. So he like totally <laughs> just said that there's two of the greatest things. Oh man, he's such a salesman. I love it. But so it was fun working at the golf store because you got to do the fun selling things. We got to hit clubs very rarely because our bosses were a little bit crazy about that. But, you know, we got to do that. But there was this sheet of this list of things that we had to agree to do every single day. And we had one on there that was once a week you had to clean the windows, which I understand that one. Windows get dirty. People touch them. Uh, And by the way, if you ever walk through a glass door, use the handle. I don't know why people walk up. What in the world? Somebody has to clean that up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so you have that. We had, to, uh, we had to shut down everything. We had to turn off the lights. But every single day we had to vacuum the floors. I understand the window one once a week. And once a week we had to clean the bathrooms because we didn't have a lot of traffic. But there were some days where there would be maybe five people come in the store. And it was a real slow day. And it's concrete parking lot, so they weren't tracking in anything. And it's this real heavy packed carpet, so there's nothing on it. And every day we had to vacuum the floor. Every day. And I thought that was stupid. <laughs> Bud thought that was stupid. Every person that worked at that store thought that was stupid. But guess what we did every single day? We vacuumed. Because that's what the boss wanted. See, we don't get paid for our opinions. We get paid to vacuum. You see, when we look at this passage specifically, you find out what's very important to Christ. You find out that the harvest is what's important to Him. He sees the multitudes. He's moved with compassion. He says, the harvest is important. The laborers are few. That's what's important to Christ. So it really doesn't matter what your opinion on it is. See, because we did not get bought so that we could have opinions. The Lord paid for us with His blood. Loved us so much that He gave His life. The Good Shepherd died for us. You see, it doesn't matter to me whether or not Saturday is the best fishing day. I love fishing and hunting as the next guy. I'll be at visitation. My life ought to model Christ because that's what's important to Him. The gospel has to get out, and whether it's by testimony or whether it's by evangelization, whatever i got to do, that is what's important to Christ. And I don't get paid to have opinions, and I don't get paid so that I can be good at graphic design. I get paid so that I can be a witness to people who need Christ. After all, that's what's important to Him. It's not our opinions. It's not our desires. What's important to Him is those people outside that don't know Him, that they would get to hear His story at least once. I believe every man that's ever been born deserves that. 